This is Just the Right Book, and I am Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. I hope to bring to you some of the very best nonfiction authors, conversations you want to hear about the books you want to read. Amy Bloom has spent a lifetime writing exquisite and award-winning, best-selling short stories and novels always under the safe and slightly distant cover of fiction. Yet, ironically, when she is confronted with the most exposed and vulnerable of experiences, death, she brings us a memoir, a love story that touches and challenges her and us in the most fundamental of ways. A couple of years ago, I interviewed Dr. Sunita Puri, who is the medical director of palliative medicine at Keck Hospital. Dr. Puri's memoir was a profound exploration of what it means for all of us to live and to die with dignity of purpose, that the ideal companion to a good life is a good death. That is the decision that Brian Amici, Amy's husband, had to confront when diagnosed with early-onset Alzheimer's. What is a good death for him, and how would he make that happen? Amy's book, In Love, A Memoir of Love and Loss, documents this journey. Her stunningly honest recounting reveals the frustration, the sadness, and the love. Brian asked her, I don't know, maybe even demanded, please write about this. And oh man, right she has, and lucky for us. Amy, welcome to Just the Right Book. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I feel that this is always the place that I begin a book tour. Yeah, well, that's right. Yeah. I think every every book every come book, to me. Every book. Wow. Yeah. Holy cow. It's always like a homecoming. I'm always yeah. glad to be Thank here. Thank you, Amy. That's I love that. I love that. You know, as I read this book, I was I was kind of overcome or almost overwhelmed by the enormity of the circumstances and the um and, and what you endured. I mean, you you watch as your husband as you knew him change. You experience getting a diagnosis. You experience trying to figure out how to cope with this, decide what to do. Ultimately, Brian making the decision to die and then watching him die. And was the grief something that you experienced incrementally you know we know each other for a long time you're a pretty steady eddie or did you march through it and then at the end experience all the grief what 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 was that process like for you amy well i think in terms of the grief it's sort of more more of a marathon than a sprint mm, yeah. and so you go a little ways and you are overcome and you drop to your knees and then you get up and you go a little ways and then you are overcome and you drop to your knees yeah. and you just keep doing that for as long as it takes. In this case, it was a couple of years, if, you know, if I include the changes before he got yeah. the diagnosis right. and then, you know, only about six or seven months after he got the diagnosis. But you can't stop. Because right. you got to get there, and I felt I couldn't stop because I had made a commitment. And um, was it almost as if you couldn't indulge in grieving? Well, I did a lot of weeping, mm. um, but you know there was never what I had always sort of imagined grief to be like, where you crawl into bed and pull the covers up. You over couldn't your do head. that. That was just not available to me. Yeah. Did that make you angry? No, because. I suppose it's like climbing a mountain. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you don't really take time off to think about, was this really a good idea? Or, oh, I should have packed more baked beans. You just, you just keep climbing. Yeah. So speaking of climbing, there was, a, there was a paragraph in here that reminded me um, there was a, 
a book that Alice Hoffman wrote, and she described trying to have a conversation, uh, the character trying to have a conversation with a husband, and that it was like climbing a mountain that was covered in glass, Mm -hmm. and there was no place to get traction. Mm -hmm. And you describe in the book early on, this is in March of 19, or sort Mm -hmm. of in the middle, actually, Mm -hmm. You you write, I could feel him through a glass and I was banging on it, screaming at him. Why is there a glass between us? Where did it come from? Take it down. And Brian looked at me with puzzled, irritated concern and said, in effect, what glass? And please, please stop complaining about this thing that isn't even there. So did... What brought you to that moment? I mean, how long had you been watching sort of a a change? I had been watching for a couple of years. I mean, I didn't want to know what I was seeing. And yeah. I am just so sympathetic to everybody who doesn't want to see what is in front yeah. of them because it's so painful. Um, and especially with something like dementia or other kinds of, you know, dementing diseases or ALS, there's no treatment you're not going to be able to make it better. And yeah. so once you know, that in itself is a fairly overwhelming feeling. And I think what I noticed was just a certain disengagement from somebody who had always been very engaged. And were you, were you Amy, trying to rationalize what was going on? Like say, well, maybe oh, you know, sure. it's a bad day or he's stressed or... Sure, or he's a middle-aged man. You know, maybe he's not in the mood, maybe he's feeling irritable, maybe he's cranky, maybe he's hungry, maybe he's stubborn. Yeah. Um, And, you know, there are a lot of explanations for middle-aged men and women for why they do what they do. But at some point you realize that every day you are coming up with an excuse or an explanation. And so at some point you start to think, this there is really no other explanation for. And I think for me, that was his carrying around his paper calendar every day from room to room, regardless of the subject. Yeah, because you used to keep a notebook, right? Right, but the notebook would be things like, honey, your mom called, or great news, such and such is playing on Saturday night, let's go. It wasn't a calendar. It was not. I mean, we did have a calendar for, you know, things that were important, but mostly this was just letting each other know, oh, out of toothpaste. But the paper calendar covered six months, and whether huh. or not there was something written on it, he carried it with him, not just everywhere we went, but from room to room. And I thought, oh, there is no explaining this away. Yeah. You know, am I remembering this right? Somewhere in the book, you talk about that as you were watching this, you weren't really discussing it with anyone. And, you know, one of the things that I've noticed as you know we we all get to a certain age and things happen that are not so easy to talk about like why Betsy you you know why Betsy did this or that Mm -hmm. is it even in intimate relationships there are places we don't go that we don't necessarily reach out in the way that we might think did you find as you were watching Brian change and beginning to get worried, did you kind of keep it to yourself or did you start expressing it to other people or did you start making excuses for what he was doing? Well, I think I was making some excuses, but I think also I was expressing it to my friends. I mean, I was saying, I don't know what's wrong with him. Yeah. He's doing this. He's doing that. He's talking about football all the time. And I could hear myself with this litany of complaints, which is not how I had gone through um, yeah. Our marriage, it's not that either of us were perfect, but I understood what his faults were and he understood what my faults were. And I think we were both pretty comfortable with that. I actually say about Brian, one of the things that I really loved about him is that he was very comfortable with his own faults, even the serious ones. Yeah. And so I did complain. I complained vociferously until finally a friend of mine said, you know, you're you're doing a lot of complaining about Brian. Maybe you ought to talk to somebody professionally. And I was like, absolutely. Yeah. And that was a great help to me. 
Um, but you hadn't thought, I mean, you, you're a social worker. You practiced uh, as a therapist for 25 years, but it took somebody else to say that to you. Well, you don't. <laughs> there are things you don't want to be true, and I didn't yeah. want to be true. And I actually also had, beneath the complaints, a fairly good idea that yeah. this was something. This was not complaining material. This yeah. was a catastrophe. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. I want a vacation that can make the fun happen. For me, the best parts of a vacation are the ones that surprise you. I call those fun expected moments, and I get those from FunJet Vacations. FunJet Vacations offers vacation packages to your favorite destinations, such as Mexico, the Caribbean, Florida, Hawaii, and more. For over 45 years, they've delivered friendly, reliable service so you can focus on the fun. Right now, you can use promo code FJ50 to save $50 on your next FunJet vacation. Get more moments that are fun expected. Surprise yourself at Dreams Resorts and Spas by AMR Collection at FunJet.com or call your local travel advisor. Restrictions apply. Well, the tipping point for the neurologist was a sort of combination of circumstances and also Brian's own decision, which is that he had had hip replacement surgery and um, his second hip replacement. And his observation was that he just seemed to have no short-term memory. You know, I, he would say, what time's the physical therapist coming? And I would say, oh, she's coming at 11. And he would so say- So he knew that. Well, he, no, he would say, I mean, he knew there was a physical therapist, but then he would be like, oh, oh, it's not the guy, it's the girl. And I'd be like, yeah, mm. she came two days ago. And he'd go, okay, what time is she coming? And I'd say, she's coming at 11. And about 10 minutes later, he'd go, what time is the physical therapist coming? Is it that guy who's coming again? And I didn't do any pushback, but he, he himself observed I think that he was being surprised a lot that even though he could see that it was on the calendar and even though I was telling him, things were catching him by surprise. And mm -hmm. he said to his uh, surgeon, his excellent uh, hip replacement surgeon, I just feel like my short-term memory is gone. And the surgeon said, occasionally this happens, people who've been under anesthesia, yeah. it's, it's not unheard of. You don't seem like the kind of guy to whom it would happen because you're quite healthy, but it should lift in a few weeks. And that was a couple of weeks after the surgery. Um, two weeks later, two or three weeks later, Brian said to me, it's, it's a little better, but it's not really better. Uh, we should just go talk to a doctor. And I said, let's go talk to a doctor. Mm. So when you go to the doctor, what, what's the first step in them... You're, so they understand, the neurologist understood that Brian was having some memory issues. Right. So what's the process look like then? So there's a series of questions, both for me and for him. How long have you noticed this? Is it this kind of memory loss? Is it that kind of memory loss? Do you find any changes in his vocabulary? Do you... Uh, do you have concerns about his balance or his proprioception, which I did. And in fact, again, one of those things where you suddenly look at the material back, in front back. of you or behind you, he had gashed his hand. He had fallen off a bench. He had fallen off the front porch. He had stumbled into sort of a ditch full of weeds. And all those things uh, concerned me. So I shared all of that information as well. Um, and I shared all that with the neurologist, although I really was quite mindful that even as I was sharing it, I really wanted to protect him and minimize it. But I thought, this is not the occasion to do that. This is yeah. the occasion to be straightforward. And, and Amy, so you have some of the tests in the book. Yeah. Right. So I wonder how, now the book pub today, right? Mazel tov. Um, and so I started looking at those tests and I'm thinking, okay, I, I'm going to, I'm going to 
take some of these questions. Mm, the clock test is popular. Right. Yeah. That's the one I was going to bring up, the mm-hmm. clock test. What is it? Describe the clock test, and what is it about that that would be revealing? Because it seems pretty straightforward. I think it is both revealing and straightforward. Um, basically, the neurologist or who's ever doing the test. And one of the things that's sort of great and terrible is you don't need to be terribly sophisticated to give somebody these tests and to score the results. You don't really have to be a neurologist in order to look at somebody's clock results. You just have to understand what's involved. And so they'll say, draw a clock and make the hands show 10 minutes of one. And there's a wide range of ways in which people fail to do this when they have cognitive decline. They can't draw the face. They can draw the face, but they can't draw the hands. They can draw the hands, but not in the right position. They draw Mm. four hands, not two hands. Um, They might make it in the shape of 10 to 1 and also 20 after 12. I mean, people, there are a lot of different ways to get it wrong, but it just seems to be you could have a neurologist explain to you exactly why why it is as revealing as it is, but it is. And if you have other issues that are not cognitively related, you are unlikely to have difficulty with the clock. And if you have cognitive issues, you are likely to have difficulty with the clock. Hmm. It doesn't mean you might not be able to do it, but it might be quite difficult. Yeah, I bet a lot of people are going to do that clock thing. I imagine so. I remember somebody telling me, you know, when as we're all getting older and, you know, you forget a name, you forget this or that. And somebody once said to me, well, don't worry if you forget uh, that that utensil is a spoon. Worry about it if you don't know what a spoon is for. Yes. Or they'd say, you know, don't worry if you've put your keys in the freezer. Just worry if you don't know what the keys are for. Yeah. That's that so sort of it's, idea. It's a similar kind of thing. But that is way down the road. And so the fact is, if you were in a situation or a loved one was in a situation where you no longer knew what the keys were, you would have had the dementing disease for several, not only for several years, probably for five or six or seven years to get to that point. And long before you would reach that point, you would have struggled with language, with nuance, with abstract thinking, with balance, et cetera. One of the, one of the things that shocked me in the book was Brian takes a test. He has an MRI. You and Brian meet with the doctor, and he confirms that Brian has early onset Alzheimer's. Well, as they say, most likely because we don't know. You don't. We, you can't. Right. Right. Unless we do an autopsy, we can't say. But most likely, and most likely, has had this for several years. Right. So, and then, am I? Had I read this right? They then had nothing to offer. Pretty much. Like um, nothing. Like okay, thank you, Brian and Amy. Well, no, it was nicer than that. Although. <laughs> The essence was unchanged. Um, You could go and get a second opinion. You could get an improved uh, test. Maybe there would be more interpretations of the MRI. Um, You might want to try one of the medications that for a very, very small percentage of people succeeds in modifying the symptoms for a very limited period of time after which they re- they return at their full level. Mm. And the side effects of which are can be very, very hard on the body. Yeah. So all of those things were, were said to us. It's not that there was good luck to you. On the other hand, at the end of the day, it was pretty much stay in touch Eat what, blueberries. What did that feel like at that second? Well, it's been more than two years and I'm still mad about it. So mm-hmm. it felt, I mean, it felt like we were in free fall. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, we're, we're privileged people who live in America. We figured there would be some medical treatment. There'd be an answer. There, or something or something like medical treatment. Um, And 
as it turns out. Even a placebo. <laughs> placebo, I wouldn't have minded either. I don't think he would have minded either. But but in the end, you know, lots of suggestions about things that you can minimize, do to minimize the exceptional difficulty of the life you will be living. The mm. first thing the doctor said was, Brian should not be driving. And he yeah. said, oh, because I might get lost. And the doctor said, because you might kill somebody. Also, he should remove the contents of his wallet. He should make sure not to be responsive, you know, to strangers phoning him for Asking personal for information. information, not to be scammed. I'm trying to think what else. Um, uh, exercise was a good idea. Plenty of sleep was a good idea. Eating blueberries was a good idea. Um, uh, getting an app on my phone so that I could always find his phone would be a very good idea. And it turned out, actually, that was that a was, genuinely yeah. helpful suggestion. And that was, the, that was the end of the things that would help. I mean, everybody hopes and everybody wants to suggest things that might make it better, but there is, in fact, no, no, no cure, cure and no treatment. Amy, just as an aside, one of the things that I thought was, uh, of the many things that I thought was enormously informative was your description of coping with Brian's, you know, deterioration, either his impatience or getting lost. You tell a, a story about the, you know, the Guilford Fair mm -hmm. where he, you know, loses the grandchildren and then gets angry at them or missing appointments or getting, you know, it's, it was a thing that I loved about the book on so many different, there's so many different ways that you could read the book. Like I, I, I read it twice and each time I, I was absorbing a different piece, but I think the piece that you do of what that looks and feels like was, was spectacular. Oh, thank you. I, 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 I mean, it just keeps sitting in my brain. So I want to go back to that. I want to go back to being in the neurologist's office. Very quickly, Brian makes the decision, and, and the uh, he, as you say, he says, he wanted to die on his feet, not live on my knees, mm -hmm. and decided that, he very quickly seemed to decide that he wanted to end his life before he would be on his knees. Were you shocked? Were you surprised? Did this seem consistent with what you knew about Brian? Well, I was surprised because he made the decision. I mean, we had a long, weepy, private weekend. Yeah. But after canceled your plans yes. and took to bed. Right. But after that weekend, he was very clear. And um, once I got over the surprise that that was so clear to him, I wasn't surprised at all. It's a hundred percent who he was. Mm -hmm. This is a guy who ne never backed down, never backed away from a yeah. fight. Right. His number one principle in life is there. There's going to be a fight. Throw the first punch. I mean, that is just who he was. The second principle was better to ask forgiveness than permission. Yeah. So, you know, this was a pretty fearless, hard-charging guy. This is somebody who loved football partially because he loved contact, and he didn't mind getting knocked down, and he didn't mind knocking somebody down. He would always put out his hand to help them back up. Yeah. But um, for him, life was about engagement. Mm. And if he couldn't engage, he was just not interested. And he was very much not interested in being a shell of his former self, in being unable to read, unable to know people, unable yeah. to have conversations, unable to play a game of gin or Monopoly or talk about what was happening in a meaningful way, and very much did not want to be an object to be taken care of. Yeah. I mean, he liked being Brian. He wanted to go on being Brian. Yeah. And I, I probably shouldn't say this, except it was in the book, but I did laugh out loud at, I did laugh out loud at Brian's line 
after he proposed to you that at the right time you'll figure out how to kill him. Mm-hmm. And um, and then you said to him, well, you're going to go to jail. And his line was, you'll do great in jail. You're so resourceful. You're a leader. You'd be great. I thought, well, he, he was able to retain <laughs> that mm-hmm. kind of, you know, yeah, you'll do fine in jail. No, right. no, no Not problem. Not worry. Yeah. But really, what were your options at that point? So you come up with this, like, seemingly logical, appropriate for Brian step. Now now what? Well, now, basically, if you're in the United States of America, you are just out of luck. Yeah. Because even though we have what are called right-to-die states, and I know that people... People probably said to you, well... Endlessly. Why not just go to Colorado go or to Vermont? Colorado or Wyoming or Vermont. But they haven't read the laws. Yeah. And the laws, it will not surprise you, are cookie cutter similar, which suggests that there might be a guiding hand. Um, yeah. But they're all six months to live with a terminal disease, with a terminal disease that doctors declare is terminal and that you will be dead in six months. In other words, even if you had a terminal disease that was going to end your life in a year, that is not good enough. And you must be able to take the medication Regardless of the degree to which you're compromised, incapacitated, or anything. No. Pain, suffering, and a commitment. Immaterial. 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 Uh, So it's six months and a terminal diagnosis. I think in a lot of places you have to have two doctors attest to that. And then you have a series of interviews, usually two oral, and one in which you submit a written... um, sort of testament to your circumstances. And if you pass through the eye of the needle, then um, a doctor, if you can find that doctor, will prescribe a lethal dose, and then you are responsible for administering it to yourself. Now, the number of people who are in fact terminally ill who can do that is not enormous. Yeah. And if you are in a state of cognitive decline, you're simply not eligible because, of course, you don't have six months to live, although you do, in fact, have a terminal disease. Yeah. You know, I kind of understood that, not to the degree I did after reading the book. But one of the one of the other people in the book that I became, I I would say I was in love with, was Wayne. Oh, Was that his name, the psychiatrist? Yes. The great Wayne, as he's known in my house. Yeah, because what Wayne seemed to understand, with which the neurologist didn't and Brian's therapist didn't seem to understand, is that you've got this skinny, skinny, skinny line between having the ability to execute on a decision and it being too late yes and and the other doctors didn't seem to quite get that well it's possible that they didn't understand it it's also possible that that prospect is daunting and dark and difficult yeah and they preferred to say things like one last trip focus on joy Mm. i appreciated in principle, but well, it you was, sounded annoyed in the book about that. I think even now to say that I was annoyed is to understate, understate. it by a thousand percent. Because it was it presumptive. Inf- I found it infuriating, yeah. and Brian found it infuriating. He's like, I would like to have joy. I would also like not to have Alzheimer's. Yeah, right. <laughs> and and so Wayne actually became. M- way more useful than and compassionate than others that you ran into. He was extraordinary. He was, first of all, a wonderful and skilled therapist who's just so helpful for me in bearing the grief, in recognizing, as I now think all the time, grief is the price you pay for love. Mm -hmm. And if you have loved then you are often, I think, prepared for that price. And also understood the practical circumstances. And having then interviewed Brian, he was very clear that this was a strong-minded man who knew what he wanted to do, who still had the cognitive functioning 
to make that decision. Who had that skinny spot, right. He was still occupying a spot in which he had enough cognitive understanding of what, what he was doing, what he was saying, and what he was planning, mm. which is sort of what we think of as discernment. You know, Amy, when you talk about the the love and the loss and understanding that, you know, I think about, I, I probably, as I get older, think about it more, that both of my parents, who both experienced horrible things in, in Europe, came out of it with two different ways of approaching it. My mom decided, you know what, I'm giving up the highs because I don't want the low. Mm-hmm. And my dad decided, I don't want to give up those highs. I'll take the low. Mm-hmm. And, you know, reading, and I want to come to that. I want to come to your relationship with Brian because that is the name of the book, mm-hmm. In Love. And that made it all the more excruciating to read what what you must have been going through. So describe for us how you and Brian met and what made you fall in love with him. I think I fell in love with Brian. He had a lot of lovely qualities. Um, So despite the bad haircut and the terrible glasses, which had to be improved immediately, (laughs) um, he was just just so big and full of life and Mm. full of noise and full of enthusiasm He was just the most game person I had ever known. You say to Brian, honey, there is a drag queen parade in Coney Island. If we leave now, we can get there in time for the talent show. He's like, let me get my hat. Yeah. You know, we were, we were. I love that quality. It was just terrific. We were, I was at an artist residency and Brian snuck in. And that night we had decided to have um, a big party. It was not a large group of people. And um, we had decided to have a gay party. And everybody was going to make their best contribution because we had, I think, slightly more of our group was gay than was not. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the guys said to Brian, you should be in a kissing booth. And Brian said, I am thrilled. And he was wearing his red, (laughs) I still remember this, his red V-neck sweater and a pink tourmaline necklace that one of the girls had put on him, and a tiara. And he, and he did, was good to go. He was, I am ready. Doors are open. So that's a wonderful way to be in yeah. this world. And um, that's a lot of what I was drawn to. Plus, he was a great reader. Yeah. He was a really good architect. Um, and, and he loved you. And he loved me to pieces. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. If you're like me, you love the idea of redirecting your space. You might browse Pinterest, you might watch some home decorating shows, and just everywhere you go, you're daydreaming about your new decor. But wouldn't it be great if you could see your interior design ideas come to life? Give Redecor a try. Redecor is an interior decorating mobile game that's so much fun to play. Redecor is a great creative outlet that lets your imagination run wild. Experiment with different colors, materials, and textures as you design room after room. I think my favorite part about the game is just expressing my own creativity as I participate in each challenge. Usually I play maybe first thing in the morning, maybe late at night, uh, occasionally in between meetings, just when the time is right. I'd say what makes Redecor really different is that While it's fun to play, it actually is beneficial into everything I want to do to my own home. And that's what makes Redecor a home design app and a mobile game in one. It's a place to play, explore designs, find inspiration, and connect with others who share your passion for home decor. The graphics are so realistic and detailed, and you're able to customize every piece of the room. They've even got style guides with tips, tricks, and advice for decorating. So test your creativity. Enter your designs and challenges, and let other players be the judge. Read the design brief and impress other fellow read decorators by choosing the best combinations of color, textures, and materials out of a variety of options. Submit your best design and reap the rewards if you come out on top. So practice your interior design skills and express your creativity with Redecor. Download Redecor for free on the App Store or Google Play Store. That's R E D E 
C-O-R on the App Store or Google Play Store. See you there. So you and Brian, when you met, had to upend other lives that existed. And Brian's words to you should be sort of like, you, you know, engraved somewhere because how could you resist it? Share with us the the essence of what he said. He had picked me up at the train station and um, he picked me up and then immediately pulled off and parked the car. And he said, I know who you should be with. You should be with like a fancy guy and a guy with money. And um, I bet your sister can find you that guy in a minute. But I think you should be with a guy who doesn't mind that you're smarter than he is, mm. who doesn't mind that you're often going to need the main event and he's going to be standing at the back of the room who will make you a cup of coffee late at night and bring it to you because he respects how hard you work. And I don't know if I can be that guy, he said. And then he started crying because he was also a big, big crybaby. Um, he said, but I'd like to give it a shot. Mm. How do you not marry that guy? How do you not marry that guy? And, and he had a great smile, Amy. You know, it was kind of a contagious smile. Yeah, big laugh, big smile. Yeah. And that was really part of also his sort of leaning forward into the world, which is why I think the first thing I noticed with his symptoms of Alzheimer's was the, was the retreating. Yeah. It was just not like so him not in him. any way to pull back, to lean back, to say less, to engage less, to not want to go, to be uncomfortable in new settings. We went, I remember this actually, we went to uh, a backyard picnic that his best friend hosted every summer. And this was about two years before the diagnosis. And the best friend's daughter, who was like a niece to Brian, said to his best friend, although not to us, which I understand, is Uncle Brian okay? He just doesn't seem like himself. Mm -hmm. And that was true two years before the diagnosis, all the time. He did not seem like himself. Yeah, there was just something off. So you cycle through all this information. We know you know how to do research. You find this organization in Switzerland called Dignitas, is mm -hmm. that the right pronunciation? Yeah. Who who feels like, who whose mission is to solve the moral conundrum and support someone in their own self-determination in the in these circumstances that's their that's what they're there to do yes their slogan is life with dignity death with dignity mm. as you were saying when you first at the top of our talk right that is their goal they see it very much as a function of human rights that people should have the right to determine their end of life, just as they have the right to determine their life. And, you know, the, the idea of the self-determination, one of the things that's striking as you talk about it, although I found their process to be like a little bumpy in terms of it was unpredictable and then the doctor shows up late at night in the hotel, Dr. G it was his name, I think. One of the things that was clear is they never made anything a foregone conclusion. You know, they laid, le left space for self-determination right down to when you were in the room and Brian would be administered the medicine, even even after he takes the, the anti-medic, anti yeah. They say, is this still what you want? Yes that they are really committed to that. They are really committed to the notion that this is an option, this is a service that they offer, Yeah. but that at any time somebody has a change of heart, there is no problem with that at all. One can retreat from the edge at any point, and they really are quite committed to that. And it's not just that they say that and that they offer that, but the atmosphere supports that. Yeah. But Amy, you don't have that choice at that moment, right? Your 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 job now 
is to support Brian in his decision. Yes. And how hard was that at, at already, you know, on the plane to Zurich, in Zurich? You know, I think about that dinner you had the night before. Um, how hard was it for you in those 24 hours to say, this is the right thing? It wasn't hard to say this is the right thing. It was hard for me to know that it was the right thing for him Mm -hmm. and it was necessary for him and that my job was to support him in that. Um, And there wasn't a lot of other, there wasn't a lot of room for other things. It's not that I didn't feel yeah, other you things, must have felt but I, it, I, I felt it in every inch of my body. I mean, but you I, must have been fighting yourself. All the time. It was, I was, it was very tiring. I was fighting myself all the time, every minute, every day, and wanting to push back the clock and also feeling like it is not right for me to try to talk him out of it at this point. Yeah. Because he, he was, was so clear. He was so clear. And even as we're in Zurich, he would say to me, I am not afraid. I don't want to do Mm. this. But since I know I have to leave you either way, this is the way I want to go. You know, like I mentioned in the introduction, Amy, when, you know, I've had the good fortune to do like, I don't know, three or four hundred of these interviews and podcasts. But that Dr. Um, Puri that I mentioned in the introduction, my goodness, listening to her talk about accepting death and making death a good death for you is the way to seal a good life. And I kept thinking about that as I was reading your book and thinking about Brian make that decision because that's what he did for himself. It is, and that is absolutely how he felt about it. And I will say these were always issues that concerned him. And it's one of the things that made him such a great supporter of Planned Parenthood. He thought that people yeah. should have agency. Right. People should be able to make decisions about their their own lives. And he had always felt this way. It had always been a subject that was close to his heart. And so I think that's one of the reasons he made the decision so quickly and without hesitation, which is that he already knew exactly how he felt about this issue. Yeah. And, you know, I thought about, you talk about in the book that, so you have five grandchildren mm-hmm. who are young, 11 and six and... Yes, then, yeah. Uh, then. Four. And, you know, aside from how and when you tell them, you know, you you had this line that you preserved for the grandchildren, remembering him as their loving, fun, goofy, candy-sharing, soft-touch babu. Mm-hmm. And he would have lost that. I mean, I have a friend whose husband just died and had been 11-year downhill, difficult, painful process. And one of the things that makes her sad is that her younger grandchildren only knew her husband deteriorated. Yeah. They had no sense of him as that other person. And even the older grandchildren, maybe with time, would remember him that way. But, and your grandchildren have Brian in their head. There is no other Brian to remember no. but the fun, loving, yes. candy sharing Babu. Yeah. And that is what he wanted. And I mean, he just, he wanted to be himself at the end of his life. Yeah. Amy, did writing the book help you process or was it just something because you promised Brian that you felt like you needed to do? Did it prolong the worst part of the pain? Oh, I don't know about that. Yeah. <laughs> I think, um, you know, partially I wrote because I'm a writer. Yeah. And um, and I very much wrote because he asked me to. 
And also I was making notes all along because half of what you do for anybody with a partner who is seriously ill take is, notes. is take notes and the doctor's appointments and medication or no medication or exercise or no exercise or new complaints or side effects. So I was taking notes anyway. Um, and then there were a couple of times when I was um, so angry I couldn't see straight. Mm. And I thought, oh, let me go to my office and write and this write. down, <clears throat> as opposed to burning a building down. And that seemed like a better choice. And so then I had more and more notes. And then after his death, I began looking at it and thinking about it. And I had made, a, I had made some notes. This is a great thing about phones. I had made some notes while we were in Zurich. Mm-hmm. Just about some conversations and some afternoons. And then I thought, well, let me try and do what I promised him I would do. And that began to shape the book. Yeah. One of the things I thought about, you and I have had this conversation about writing before. And, you know, like some writers say, oh, it just pours out of me. <laughs> and, well, you know, God bless them. <laughs> you've always said, no, I, you know, it's a good eight hours of writing if I manage to get a terrific sentence or a paragraph down. And I was thinking about that as you were, I was thinking it's tough in process when you're doing fiction. I just couldn't imagine moving back through all your notes in that experience to get this down. Was it similar to to other writing experience? Oh, it was not. I mean, sometimes the good sentence, I'd be like, oh, yeah, that yeah. actually captures nice. what I wanted. Yeah. Yes, nice, good for me. But um, it turns out that you can cry and type at mm-hmm. the same time, yeah. and uh, and that you can cry and type at the same time every day. Wow. Hmm. So what do you hope the reader takes away from this, Amy? Well, it seems to me that there are sort of two books kind of braided together, and one is the love story, and so I hope people will see that and mm-hmm. respond to that. Um, I think it was a pretty good love story. And the other... It's a lovely love story. I think so. And the other is wanting people to understand this process mm. and maybe some of the issues involved. Yeah. And maybe it will allow people... Maybe it will be possible for somebody to give somebody else a copy of the book and say, oh, I thought you might find this interesting or useful or perhaps we should talk about these things yeah that would that was what brian wanted and it's certainly what i would like it's a way in which i would like the book to be helpful yeah and so uh, we're going to close with the poem that brian loved um and that was read at a pretty exuberant joyous (laughs) memorial service that you had at the library across street uh from you. So I'll I'll make my closing comments uh, now and let the podcast end with your reading the poem. You know, I do think, having read the book, that it will give people permission to have conversations that they might put off. That is my wish. You know, I, 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 it, it makes it safe because you're so transparent in the book and so honest. Something that somebody might be afraid to say or look at or appreciate, I think you, I think you give them permission to sort of raise their hand. And I hope so. I, I think you did that. I, I do. Um, you know, I was, I was grateful, Amy, to have read the book. And um, I think lots of people will. Plus, I love the way you write, honey. (laughs) I'm glad. I just love the way you write. Um, So we have been talking with Amy Bloom, the author of In Love, A Memoir of Love and Loss. And Amy, if you would read this for us. So this is a poem by Zimborska, one of Brian's favorite poets. It's called Allegro ma non troppo. Fast, but not too fast. (laughs) Life, you're beautiful, I say. You just couldn't get more 
fecund, more befrogged or nightingale more anthillful or sprout-spreading. I'm sorry, sprout-sprouting. I'm trying to court life's favor, to get into its good graces, to anticipate its whims. I'm always the first to bow, always there when it can see me with my humble, reverent face, soaring on the wings of rapture, falling under waves of wonder. Oh, how grassy is this hopper, how his berry ripely rasps. I would never have conceived it if I weren't conceived myself. Life, I say, I've no idea what I could compare you to. No one else can make a pine cone and then make the pine cones clone. I praise your inventiveness, bounty, sweep, exactitude, sense of order, gifts that border on witchcraft and wizardry. I just don't want to upset you, tease or anger, vex or rile. For millennia, I've been trying to appease you with my smile. I tug at life by its leaf hem. Will it stop for me just once, momentarily forgetting? To what end it runs and runs. Fabulous. Thank you, Amy. Thanks for joining us on Just the Right Book. Uh, please tell all your friends about it. You can uh, find us anywhere that you listen to podcasts on Spotify or iTunes. Thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. Produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, Johnny Diamond, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening.